seems cold and bleak and you just can't take it anymore. Here it comes, that glimmer of hope, a light shines through the door. It's a hopeless show, with Aaron and Rogan, whoa. It's a hopeless show, with Aaron and Rogan, whoa. Hi, I'm Aaron Wolf. It's great to be here. And also, wow, what we've been through in 2021 so far. Wow. Words can't describe it. It's, it's, uh, we're far from the United States right now. But today's guest, I think, can bring perspective to that. Her name is Dr. Shirley Whitaker. She is an expert in COVID. She's an expert in racial injustice and being a leader in that movement. She's a future Oscar nominee, and she also is someone who is very in touch with honoring the past so that we can propel ourselves forward into the future. So without, without any more, here is my conversation with Dr. Shirley Whitaker, an unbelievable person and someone I think that can bring us together and can represent all that we need right now to bring us hope. Talk about someone who brings people together and brings hope. You oh. are it. Well, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. I think it's going to be fun. Yeah, that's uh, the goal is to be fun and to bring to, bring to light some things that are um, going on today. And so I think I really want to go back in time a minute because we've just talked about some things that we'll, we'll hit on. Um, Growing up for you, I know wasn't uh, wasn't easy. No one's childhood is uh, is just all bells and whistles, but yours was particularly of uh, difficult significance because growing up in the South uh, as a kid was. Uh, there was you got to see a lot of disgusting things and uh i lived outside of our small town if you can think a bit on the outside of that and the road behind my house separated us from where whites lived and um i remember playing with a little girl that lived there and my mother you know never sat me down and said, this is black, this is white. No one ever did. Well, one time when I got older, my cousin explained to me um, to make sure I remember, my, did I know my alphabets? And I was, yeah, I can show off I know my alphabets. And she says, okay, okay, you gotta know a W and you gotta know a C. You go to wherever there's a C, you don't go where there's a W. So I realized that she was telling me that I went to the colored, which was C. It didn't matter whether I could spell it. Just when you see a C, you want to drink some water, you drink water from the one that has a C on it. And other than that, um, my people say the word, you know, nigger. My mother never, my father and mother never sat me down and said, this is a bad word. I just knew. Uh, somebody said, oh, you, someone had to tell you. I just think the tone in which they said it let me know that it was a nice word. 
And I remember when I was four or five, and that road that separated the blacks from the white, I used to go back there and play with this little girl. In the hot Georgia sun, we would play all day, all day. And I remember her mother coming to me and saying, Shelaine, you need to go home now because I'll be hard pressed to explain to my, my kinfolks how I let my daughter play with a nigga. And I didn't know, I just knew it wasn't nice what she had said to me. I remember getting up and I brushed the dirt off because we were playing in the dirt and I walked home. I wasn't, you know, just across, just maybe in a day, today's turn, less than a block. It was a dirt road and you walked down the road and I remember walking down that road and I knew what she had said to me wasn't nice. And I said to myself, I will never ever go to that house again. Hmm. And I remember the next day and I was in my mother's bedroom and I looked through the blinds and I peeped and a little girl was standing there. She was waiting for me to come play. But I had already made my plans that I would never ever go to that house again. I didn't go. And um, someone interviewed me about three years ago and I was telling that story. My sister said, you never told us. I just, why would I tell you? I'd already made my, I was four or five, but I, I had in my mind that this wasn't right and I decided what I was gonna do and I did it. So what was that a tale? Yeah. What was my parents to do? There was nothing they could do. This white woman had called me a name. In South Georgia, you're not gonna go back there. My parents are not gonna go. They said, baby, just, you just don't go back. They would have told me that. And I already decided I wasn't going back and I didn't go back. Mm -hmm. I never ever went back. So I, I, I don't know whether I had a sense of who I was. Uh, I knew that she said something that wasn't nice to me, but I knew that I would not expose myself to her again. So that's just, you know, you grow up in a certain environment and certain things, you automatically know the things for survival. And not that someone will sit you down, not like our son, my husband will tell him about when he's driving, what to do, these are the steps you do to stay alive. No one ever told me that. I just knew that there was something different between being black and being white. And that even when whites came into our neighborhood, everybody got quiet. Hmm. As if I, they used to say, if I would be around some older black ladies and if a white woman showed up, they say, he come Miss, they call Miss Ann, he come Miss Ann. And everybody, all, everything would change. I just, so you get, you get the message without people having to sit you down and let you know that these people do not like you. And what, from that, what, was there, did you start at some point to feel motivated to, that you wanted to pursue big things, that you want to do, um, get out of this awful, awful 
situation during an awful period in the South um, and in our country. I mean, our country is stained with it. You know, it's it's we're right back at it again with this a lot of this divisive nature. But but just focusing on you for a second before we get to the wider picture. Did was there a moment where you thought, you know, I I want to transcend. I want to get out and 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 accomplish all that I can accomplish. I don't in know spite of all these obstacles. I always love love to learn. I think I was disciplined. I did go to work um, babysitting for this physician. He had six children. And um, he didn't talk much, but I think he watched how I managed his children because they were (laughs) heathens. But I wasn't raised like that, so I didn't tolerate that. And he he was also our family physician, but I never really had to go to physicians. I mean, the time I went to the dentist, oh God. And I, I told the dentist, I said, I'm going to college next year in Atlanta. Do you know of any dentist that I can go to there? And he, and I had saved my money and paid him in advance. And he <laughs> said, my friends don't work on niggas. What can I say? So I, I remember leaving there and I had paid him in advance. I never went back for my money. I should have gone and got my money back. But <laughs> <laughs> so I, I left there. But HK was his name was HK Hezekiah. And um he felt he he wanted me he I had a brother and sister. My brother went to Mo House, my sister went to Spelman. But he felt I should go to medical school. And I couldn't understand why does this white man want to encourage me to go to medical school? Can't be something good in here. So I wouldn't go to his office. So when my mother would go there, he said, make sure, they call me Shelly Ann, make sure Shelly Ann come by. I didn't want to go by because I couldn't understand. But he did want me, he encouraged me to go to medical school. And um, his, the oldest son he had told me, and his son was sad about it. He said, my grandfather's in the clan. So the, so the doctor that encouraged me to go to medical school, father was a Klansman. And so what was it? What, what do you think? Did he see that spark in you that was, that had all this potential? He, that's what he, that's what he, he said. He said that you, you're so, he thought I was so bright. He said, you're so, so, and you know, I think you'll do well in medicine. I think you'll do well in medical school. That, I mean, to, I, I mean, I, I can never relate to your plight in any way, shape or form. What, what I do know is my, you know, my grandparents met in the South and they were, they lived in Alabama as my grandfather was a rabbi. He escaped Nazi Germany, came to the U.S., Met my grandma uh, when he was a teen. He left and uh, met my grandma. And then he was flying around to different places in the South in the 40s, late 40s, um, in an airplane. And to to 
teach Judaism. And my grandma at some point said, we've got to get out of here because this is this place is um, infested with racism and all that, not necessarily terribly kind to Jews either. But the the interesting thing about that is it led him, my grandfather, and now me, because I kind of am taking his lead in a lot of the work I've done to with interfaith and intercultural movements so that we can bring people together so that we can unite because of what he went through and hearing your stories and stories like yours, what you went through. And that was huge inspiration. And what I, why I'm continuing this work now is partly because how I was raised is like, mm. we don't tolerate these kinds of people. We don't tolerate this kind of nonsense. Instead, we have to work on ways like he started the interfaith movement. Um, uh, Rabbi Wolf and so what can we do about it now that um, we or our ancestors went through it and I think that's part of the reason we're talking right now is uh, how can we unite and I'm curious what which pieces led to your passion over these over your lifetime and also over these last number of years I know in particular to really both honor the past and try to unite the present with your work I always thought it was so ever since I could remember I didn't think it was right to mistreat people like that the way that they did. I remember, I mean, I was standing in front of this lady two houses down from me. And this man came there, the purpose of killing her son. And how we, when he showed up with that, he was drunk, he had a gun, and he was in this white man in a black neighborhood. And I remember her out there in that sun. And when he showed up, we all like kids, we froze, we just, we just didn't move because we didn't want him to shoot us. And I remember her begging for hours for him not to kill her son. She had to talk him down and it was ours. And we stood in that sun. And I, I, I just remember the differences. I remember my mother went to buy a hat. They made her put a plastic bag on her head. But there's one store that she went to and the guy named Mr. Jacobson, and he says, you don't, you don't need to put a bag here. And I always liked him for that. And I found out later that he was Jewish. You know, I, I didn't know, but I remember he would, he told my mother she didn't have to put a bag on her head. And I knew that back, you know, these things they did, I knew, I didn't know how to tell her I didn't want her to go to that store because I didn't want her to put on that plastic bag on her head to try on her hat. And I wanted her to tell her, go to that other man's store. And I don't know how, if I was good, I was able to explain to her what I wanted. But the idea, and you know, the more I read and about how so much hate, so much intense hate that it showed up in so many ways. So I wanted to find ways to try to modify that or make things better. And through 
this thing, the idea that you would take someone's life and not even give them a burial. I felt that's the least you could do. And that's why I want to do this funeral. It's simple. It's no big deal. But it's a way of remembering people and it's the idea, a way of acknowledging the hate and go beyond there. Acknowledge it and go towards something that may be stronger and gain some hope and resilience from that. But it's so intense, you know, and it's, you know, like the, you saw in the news yesterday where this man was talking about about the elections in Georgia. I'm from Georgia. Yeah. And he was saying that it had to stop what they were doing, you know, about. He was pissed. Yeah. But what they were doing to them, they've always done to us. What he was saying, somebody's going to die. And people did die. But no one said anything. 300 people would die coming to vote. Even if you thought about voting, you could die. Uh, one thing that you're you're saying, and it's uh, it happened uh, to my family, my ancestors in Germany, where they hated for no reason, but because of how you were born and what you believed in, and uh, and then it happened as you were saying to you and then now it happens in Georgia um now in 2020 but it's almost like it needs and I I watched that speech you were talking about and it was like oh so now this guy gets it even though he voted for all those people he's talking about um yeah like he's a he's a you know, staunch, uh, was a staunch Trump supporter and all that stuff. And then the moment that he, uh, that it happens to him. Now he realized it. It took it happening to him. You, they, they target your families. I mean, they, um, but you've known it your whole life. Yeah. Like it took for it to happen to him. You know, like going to vote, my mother, you know, she committed herself to the right for us to vote. That was very important to her. But her life, they would take your life. So he's saying that somebody's gonna die. They ain't, that's nothing new in Georgia. The only thing new is the colors changed. Yeah. Because what this, what the, everything he said that they're doing, he said, tone it down. Who could we ask to please tone it down? Don't kill two and 300 of us when we come to vote. Don't blow us up in our homes because I did. We wanted to vote. So what he's saying, it didn't dawn on him that what he was saying yesterday, we've experienced all alone in Georgia. Yep. Georgia is second to Mississippi in lynching. I mean, they and will come and just shoot you. When I, you know, I read, you know, read, when I read this stuff, and how they would, you know, just kill two and 300 at a time and leave the bodies there for the animals. So what he said, how, how, how he, he has the power to talk. We would never have had that power. When Mary Turner uh, 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 approached the Klan 
because they lynched her husband. They were so brutal to her that the NAACP took it to Congress and asked them to stop the lynching. What they did to that pregnant woman. So he, he had the right to stand up there and, and, and admonish them. But if he did it in black, that could have been his life. Yeah. Which is a, and that's where I think this country needs a, a much bigger awakening. Um, and we've talked about that. And how do you unite when people are just so far off? I do think one thing that you did um, with this film, Ashes to Ashes, and with the funeral that you concocted. And for, for those who don't know, Ashes to Ashes is a, a wonderful film. Um, it's won many awards. And it's, uh, it's about your relationship with a man named Winfred, who... Um, uh, you know, you can explain better about the film, but the Winfred was uh, was lynched, but survived, like got out before he was actually killed um, in uh, Jim Crow era. And Winfred it was 1965. Wow! You believe that? <laughs> 1965. And four years before that, he was living like on a plantation. Yeah. Isn't that something? And he touches on it in the film. But then something you did that I think is spectacular is you actually created in uh, the film. Because it's about your relationship with Winfred. And then it's about what you do with it. So instead of making a film about what he went through, you, you, made, you did something about it. You basically created a living, breathing memorial. A... a a, a live memorial uh, for the 4,000 people who were lynched in that era and never at a funeral and many don't even know their names. And it's so powerful in the film because a lot of the names are silent. A lot of the names are unknown. Right. But you're honoring them in the film while also talking to a man who survived it You're honoring these 4,000 people in a way that I think no it's like all the Holocaust memorials around are honoring the people who died who you know go nameless mainly right. and uh, including members of my family and that's great you know to have the different memorials is wonderful what you did I think is a step above that because you made it live and breathe and now it's on film forever. And that I'm, I just want to know, because I know that happened. You did all this or a lot of this, you know, before Black Lives Matter took off to another level before, um, you know, really the, the neo-Nazism, the, the white supremacy, the the anti-Semitism and racism like rose to the surface again in our country. What you were ahead of your time by, by a couple of years here um, with this, what inspired you to do it in this manner? Because to me, the way you did it is extra special. I just felt we had to do a funeral 
Because funerals, if you go and look at cultures before COVID, death and the process of, of remembering somebody with the funeral service. I mean, when you remember, see um, Black Panther, he talked yeah. to his father about he didn't, his uncle needed, should have had a burial. And yep. in African cultures, that was one of the difficulties they had with Ebola is that people did certain things when someone died. They washed down the body. And you couldn't do that with this because that caused the Ebola to spread worse. And so it's this process. And I just remember, remember when I was growing up that the funeral and it, it felt like it was a, it's, it's a sense of respect and I always remember, even when I was small, when the minister would stand over the casket and said, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And, it, it, and when I would see those pictures and I realized they, they were loved by somebody. Yep. And, and I said, I can never bring them back. You know, some place they had a rule that if they lynched somebody, and if you went and got the body, they will come and get you. So the families could not get those bodies. And when I talked with um, Ms. Rembrandt Winford, he said there are three stages to lynching. And one of the, the last stages when they put gasoline on the body and burn the body up after they mutilated it and, and put them in a noose. And then they, they, they would put gasoline and burn the body up. So the family would have nothing nothing so I felt that and then not to somebody loved them and I want them to know that we we did care about them we just was powerless to do anything and I said I cannot bring them back but at least I can give them a prayer I can give them a service and I wanted it to be I want to be something that they I wanted to be grand for them. I mean, it took me three months to find a hearse that to take the casket to the church. Cause I felt I wanted, and people lined the streets on both sides to see the casket come down. I said, this is for them. They deserve that. And have a, a, a huge a choir, 30 or 40 or 50 people singing when, they, when their, their casket was brought in. I felt it needed to be grand. They deserved that. That's the least we could do. And that it comes through so much in in the film. And and I just I guess I wonder, I want to know from you what it felt like. You had this idea. You've in your life been through it. Um your friend Winfred actually was lynched but what did it feel like to then be there that day and to have it come to fruition that you Shirley Whitaker were, were doing such a we call it in Judaism a mitzvah but a just such a beautiful uh, a beautiful thing for society and for something that would other is otherwise just so atrocious that 
Funerals are not only for the dead, they're for the living. And I felt we needed to remember them. Um, this is American history. And we all need to acknowledge that history. Yeah. Um, as a physician, I feel that I've always said, in order to help my patients to heal, I need to know their history and mm. acknowledge that history and combine it in my thought process of what I would do to help this person to heal. And to see it fall into place, it just amazed me. It took me three months to find a hearse, a glass hearse, to, and then have the guys from the 54th um, um, Massachusetts, you know, Civil War. Um, there, some of the people, fathers, were in the 54th Massachusetts um, troops. That was the glory was about them. Well, some of their descendants no, yeah. was with that casket. And to see people, I mean, during the service, people were really crying when it was just sort of brought before them that what these people, just a sliver, a sliver of what they had gone through. And it's, it's in a, I mean, and then to keep going, because it just, it's, it's amazing to me, you know, this movie, um, I have a good feeling that, you know, about what it'll do for in the uh, Academy Awards coming up. But uh, but more importantly, the message that it brings. And, and we just want people to see it so that they can understand that you're someone who, you know, you've touched on a lot of the, the hate you heard you had in your life. And to come full circle to do all these things you're doing. We're not even touching yet on what you do as a doctor, but uh, the the things that you do to turn that that hate into hope, to turn that hate into persistence, to turn that hate into resilience, is something that I think we all need right now. And after this, I want to ask you about COVID. But okay. first, with uh, but first with the whole. Black Lives Matter protests and movement and the whole really just and also it's all it's it's become to me even bigger than that because then people say but all lives matter and then well yeah all lives do all lives do matter you're right but we got to make sure all lives matter equally so we can say that all lives matter and if a certain that's the goal your goal, that's the goal. is for all lives to matter you're We're not, not there, there yet don't nope. Don't fool yourself. You're not there yet. That's your goal. So we have a little goal up here that all lives should matter. When you think about that man got his his knee on Floyd's neck, all lives matter. There's exactly. So many people die, but it's, it hasn't stopped this killing, this hate that's so intense has been. You know, people take their children to lynching because they want them to know that they are better than that person that's hanging from a tree. And to me, that only shows how weak those people are. Yep. And that you so need to be on my neck to make you feel like you're somebody. There's something lacking in you. And and so what do you think in this uniting right now in what what we have which is a divided everything? Everyone's divided. Everyone is, uh, people do not understand each other. 
What do you think would be a number one thing that we could do? So even on an individual level is because look, we can't, we can't do it all at once. We can't right. fix everything at once. This didn't, what can we this even didn't do happen on an, overnight? This didn't happen overnight and it's not going to be solved overnight. But what can we do on an individual level to, to start to make that difference, to start to this divide that's, for me, I've never seen in my life. I've never seen so much division in, in a country and, and, and how much, it, and, and for, as a Jew, just so much anti-Semitism uh, in my life. And then the plight of, of African Americans. You just haven't been in the right place. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like some people said, I, I've never seen racism. Oh, I don't know where you've been hanging out. It all well, I've seen racism. You've been in. I've seen, saying, I'll tell you this. It's for people being anti-Semitic. You, it's, it's there. It's just that wherever it is, you, if you're there, then you'll know it. You understand? Well, like some people have never, some blacks have never experienced what I've experienced. And they read about it, but they don't. They can't comprehend this. But the majority us get it. You know, majority of black folk get it. But I'm glad you, you haven't had to experience that. Well, I, I I have to take that back. Um, I have. I didn't know it was as prevalent when I was in high school. Uh, I opened my locker, and uh, or not opened. It was on front. It was on the front. So I I went to my locker, and. Uh, there was a, a little swastika on it. Um, I was in the tenth grade, and I went home and told my my mother, "This is a swastika is on my locker door." And so she went to talk to the principal of the of the high school, and the principal, Mrs. Cunningham, not I'm not. Uh, ashamed to say her name because of her behavior, uh, said to my mom, looked her in the eyes like that, and mm -hmm. said, but it's just a small swastika. <laughs> if it was a big one, that's important. Yeah, but it's just a small one. one. If it was, you know, like the Klan burned that cross. I mean, it wasn't a big one, just a tiny yeah. cross they burned in front of your house. It's laughable, right? It's it's laughable it's, it's in how in in how much stup, uh, stupidity in the in the in the ignorance. It's just that I'm just amazed at how I've, I read Grant, I read Cass, these different books. In between, that I try to read some non-lynching book, but you know, it's just amazing how prevalent the hate was and still is. And people say, oh, things, we've, we've elected a black president, things are better. <laughs> you know what they did? <laughs> Paul, oh, Obama, the things they did to him. I mean, just humiliate him. And just, but they don't, I don't, you know, they somehow put in the back of their mind, this is not because of my races. I'm not, you know, the fact that they determined on his, you know, the day he was inaugurated, they went to a lunch dinner and talked about the making him a one-term president. Why were they doing that? What did he do? He hadn't done anything. No. Nope. Just he'd breathe. Gotten people he'd gotten people excited. Yeah. Yep. And so what do you, because 
you know, in these last number of years, I've, I've ju- it's, it's risen to the surface. It's always been there. It's risen to the surface even more for everyone to see. Part of it is because of the, the phone, so you can video oh, it. Yes, and yeah. part of it is, uh, is because of, I think, some leadership in our, in our country and in our communities. So what, what would be a first step that you'd say to someone who is ignorant to all this and is uh, just walking around promoting hate and promoting uh, white supremacy and all this stuff? What, would there be a, a thing you'd say to them? As a doctor, as someone who's pro- who is far more accomplished, far more educated, far more, uh, you've done like, yet they won't accept you because of the color of their, your skin. That's right. I mean, look, I finished medical school with those other people, but it didn't mean anything. They still felt I had didn't have a right to be there. And what would you and- say now to someone who says that, who feels that way? In 2020. Do they acknowledge that they do feel that way? They part to them, it's it's not a problem. I'm not a racist. Um, you know, I I never you know, my ancestors did this. I didn't I, I didn't do that. A lot of them would say that. But the thing is, I believe just like I the certain genes change based on certain things. Over time, 400 years, certain DNA changes, like the telomere that's on the tip end of the DNA, with constant stress, it shrinks. So my telomere may be altered because of the constant stress that was passed on to me. Hmm. Yeah. I think this corn has two sides. When you walk it, one of my one of my patients was from near where I grew up in South Georgia. And he was saying that one day he was walking, he's a white guy. I was walking down the, you know, on the sidewalk with my father and there's a black man come on his son and the black man stepped off on the side of the, um, in the road. So I'm sitting here thinking, I know what, I'm sure what that black man must have felt with his son on his side. But the white man with his son, what did that tell him? What did that do to his sense of himself? It made him feel superior. And nobody had to say that. He did not say, you are more, you're more important to that person, got that dark skin. You have, and so that's the thing they work to maintain. So I believe this coin has two sides to it. My DNA has been changed. Theirs has been affected too. Affected in that it gives them a sense of themselves, that they are superior. That how can physicians, they did a study with physicians and they had patients in in the beds and they said they're dying of cancer. And they videotaped the physicians. They walked up to the room, they opened the door and they said, if physicians saw a black patient in there, they did not walk into the room. They talked to them from the door. If it was a white patient, they walked in, stood at their bedside and gave comfort to them. What in your mind is telling you to do that? Yeah. Why is it that to this, 
this day and time, black women are more likely to die giving birth in America than right. white women. It's not influenced by your age or your educational level. It's just based on the color of your skin. So what, I think there's something that over 400 years that I think is, is somehow ingrained that you have this sense of superiority and that you may not recognize it, but you, you've, been, you've been exposed to it. Like this, the girl that did cast, she was, you know, she based it on Germany and India. And she talked about... Like the caste system. Yeah, the caste system. India is the most noted one. Yeah. America, she said, has a caste system. And the caste system here was used by um, Germany, Germans and Hitler to decide how they were going to treat Jews. They used the, the system here. You know that? Yes. So they did. So, I do. but she talked about that they they had something they called the um, Nuremberg test, and they mm-hmm. had a meeting, and they stayed up all day to about ten eleven o'clock at night, designing what was they going to do to the Jews, and they used information that they had come into the United States to see how they treated blacks here, and they used this as a template. Yeah. The lady that wrote Cass, Isabel Wilkerson, I think is her name, she was in England to a meeting of Indian caste. And she said over time, she could tell what level they were. Hmm. Whether it was the, the Brahmin, which is the upper, or the right. undercast, the, the uh, untouchables. It's... They could, she could tell how they moved. They had a sense of themselves if they were the Brahmin and how they would take charge of things. And, it, and it's just passed on. So I think certain things are passed on. You, and this, the, the lady, when the lady that she saw, she um, was married to someone in a lower class. And she told the lady, she said, you and the Brahmin, she said, how did you know that? And she told her how she knew it. She said, I've tried so hard to not show that because her husband was a lower class than her. And oh. she didn't want people to, she didn't want to act, you know, uh, emphasize the difference in them. But um, Wilkinson could see that this woman was of upper class, how she handled herself how she took charge of things and her thoughts. If she had a statement, it was high. If she had an idea, her idea was more important than your idea. Yeah. And it's Which just, I just wrong. think some of it is, I may be wrong. Somebody means some people that anthropologists and look at this stuff and say, that doesn't make sense. But I think this coin has two sides to it. I, I personally couldn't agree more with uh, what you're saying. And that's what a lot of what needs to get undone in society because we are all human and we should all be from the moment we're born to the moment we die we should tr- be cr- treated equally and i think the pandemic has only shown that more and the idea that generations th- behaviors are passed on because of how 
a culture, a society treats a certain type of people. To me, it's logic. I always, this is our thing, the logic party. Not red, not blue, but we're all about logic. And uh, the whole idea of that is, that's only, what you're saying is only logical. Uh, An example I'll use is Jews, there's the, you know, everyone says this, thinks it's funny, jokes about it, that Jews are cheap, right? That, like, like there's a thing that, man, I've, people have done it's to a, me all the time. Like, they got a DNA, like th- for, got a gene for cheap. Yeah, well, and, but I, there's a reason. Um, like you throw a quarter, oh, you're a Jew, go pick it up. Here, which is terrible. It's, it's you know, it's, it's uh, but, I, but there's a truth to it to me. But there's a reason for the truth. Just like what you're saying. It's in the DNA because for thousands of years, what's been taken from Jews? Everything, no matter what. It doesn't matter what you've done in your back in Egypt. It doesn't matter what you did back in Germany or uh, Poland. In, uh, and to this day, there's people doing it where you're Jewish. No matter what, like that, everything could get taken away from you. So it's in the DNA to hold on to what you have because you never know when that's going to happen and it's all going to go away. And so to me, there is a truth in it, but not in the negative way people talk about it. No, it's because of what society has done for so many years to uh, take things away. things over and over again. The one thing that people, I think, in order to control, uh, to suppress another person, is take away their value. I'll give yeah. a ne- negative value to them. Take away their humanity. If they can say, you know, all blacks are shiftless and lazy, they're not going to work. Then all the all everybody's going to be on welfare. It's a negative, and that allows you to be above them because I, you know, I suppress you. So therefore, I took away your humanity. I took away your value. I devalued you. And when I do that, that gives me power over you. Yeah. They devalue, they de- may devalue someone who's Jewish by giving certain negative connotations. A negative, hey. take it away, devalue you, and therefore, whatever they do to you is acceptable. And, and that's what, right now, and why I think there is a, an opening, and I, I believe you do too, an opening for us to these kinds of conversations, conversations with others, trying to promote a positive in wake of so much negative right now, is uh, COVID is happening. Uh, the pandemic is going on. It's really worse now than ever, especially in this country, which has mishandled it like no other. Um, and uh, so, but I think it is a, a, a time when we can hopefully start to open some people's eyes. And and one thing that I commend you for, and I'd love to just hear your thoughts on, is I know you do these COVID talks where you will talk to people every week uh, and a lot of people tune in about you as a doctor and an expert in medicine and you have your specific expertise and then you have a general expertise and knowledge of in your years of practice in medicine. I just I want to hear what... What, where you're at in the talks of 
of the pandemic and where we're at and what maybe we can take away from what's going on right now? First thing, why did I feel I needed to do COVID talks? For the last four or five years, I was on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock for 15 minutes. I would, go, I would drive to Springfield and I would just pass on information to people and you know, predominantly black communities about their health. Um, after COVID, they closed the radio station down. And then when COVID happened, I, this friend of mine who has to do the radio program with, she start doing um, from her home, she would do it. And then I decided that I was going, you know, I, yeah, the title of my thing is, honey, we need to talk. And just talk about COVID and trying to give people some control over this, some sense that what can you do so that you can't, don't be complacent about it. What is it that they are not, you know, for as black people are concerned, who's the highest percentage of people that's dying? So certain things you have to know about, certain things you need to incorporate, is certain things that you may have to use to save your life. And so I would share with them things like, you gotta have an oximeter. And the reason you want that is that with your O2 drop, you may be in trouble. And if it drops 90, less than you know, 94 um, Fahrenheit for two hours, you're in big trouble. Things like that to tell them. And what are the things to do to build up your immune system? That's what these, in other words, I'm just, I tell them the latest thing I know about in reference to COVID that I read about as far as the medical aspect of it. And then I let them, I want them to understand what does this virus do? Why does it try to get inside of your body? What is it going to do when it get in there? And each step of the way, what is it that they are doing? What is it you try to do medicine-wise to help the body to defend itself. And then tell them about the vaccine. What's the big deal with a vaccine? What does it do? And things that they can do. The studies show about um, vitamin D, how important that is. It, you know, certain things, you know, I have this soup I tell them about, making this soup to help build up their immune system. Have the oximeter, have, um, make this tea, this uh, ginger tea that, you know, you drink. And, you know, I, I had a, my girlfriend that I went to undergrad school with got COVID, she had COVID pneumonia. And so when she came, she had been listening to the program and then she got COVID. And then when she got back home, she said she had no appetite, she couldn't eat. And I told her about this soup and she says, that's the only thing gave her strength. It's things that they, we will have to do because the hospitals are gonna to be too crowded. They will not be able to take some of us in. So what is it you can do to try to help yourself? And why? What, build up your immune system, right? So different things you need to do. Just teaching about, um, when, a, when, when you, my, Nate, my husband, cousin, I mean, she's 30 some years old and she had a stroke. That could have been COVID. When you got young people so that they don't take things lightly and that they do all they can to fortify themselves and help themselves because 
a friend of mine two days ago is COVID positive. And so she says, I got my oxometer, I got, I made my soup, I'm, I'm, the things that she's doing because she's at home. She can't go to the hospital. They, the hospitals are filled with people that are really sick. So that's my goal and that's what I've tried to do. And, and people seem to be using the information I'm sharing with them and that's nice. Well, here's here's something that everyone wants to know right now. What's in this soup? <laughs> oh, well, I went and I found suits to build your immunity, right? Because what I was doing during the summer, I was telling people to make smoothies with a lot of green stuff in there and, you know, turmeric and all this kind of stuff. And then I said, you know, I realized black folks, a lot of men into that smoothie stuff. <laughs> they ain't gonna do no smoothies. My mother said, baby, that's nice, but I don't know if I want that. So I said, but soups, they, they and salads with certain greens in there. And so I got a soup and I, you know, I put two or three of them together and, you know, coconut oil and I put garlic and onions. And then I got some, you know, I either use some chicken broth or vegetable broth in there. And I, uh, one recipe said you put some bok chow. My girlfriend, that one I told you, was had was COVID. She had pneumonia. And she said, uh, she's from Georgia. Girl, I didn't know what bok chow was. So I said, <laughs> she went to store, she found bok chow. But bok chow, kale, spinach, cabbage, you know, things like I would say, studies say that Germany and South um, Korea. South Korea seem to be doing pretty good with the with the uh, the virus, and they think it's because of the cabbage. It's good for, for your um, your inflammation and all this kind of stuff, and so is turmeric. So these things we put it all in the soup. So I have, you know, I say kale, spinach, um, bok choy, uh, collards from I'm from the south. We have to have collards, right? And kale. So it's about five or six of these vegetables I put in the soup. And you know, vitamin D, studies have suggested that people that have low vitamin D before they come to hospital tend to do worse than those that, that have um, a normal vitamin D. And the thing is for black people, because we got melanocytes, our vitamin D tend to be low because when you can get it cheap from the sun, but you know, when black folks go in the sun, the melanocytes come and they shield so that the vitamin D cannot get in readily. Hmm. So the vitamin D, so I said, you know, what you know would help your immune system is vitamin D. And you know, mushrooms have, especially shiitake mushroom has a lot of vitamin D in it. And turmeric yeah. is good for inflammation, right? That's good. <laughs> so they put the turmeric so you've in come up with garlic, the, huh? This is, this is the magic potion. I, I just I just wish that um, you know these last eight nine months you were the one coming on TV telling everyone here are some things that I'm deducing that we need to do and everyone in the country knew about your magic soup because uh, you know instead of uh, people going on TV and just yelling and arguing because uh, making practical uh, logical de- um, decisions and medical uh, deductions. Uh, not deductions. Um, what's the they, word? They I'm give a lot of medical assessment of stuff. Assessments, but the thing is yeah. That 
like the girlfriend of mine that on Monday found out that she was COVID positive. The hospital is so busy, they don't have time to sit down and tell you certain things you might be able to do for yourself. And, you know, there's this breathing technique that this guy in England, you know, recommended. And I was reading this article from Myra Gates that's with the New York Times, and she was COVID. This girl was running 10 miles a day and COVID knocked her on her butt. And she was saying that um, Rowling, the lady that did um, Harry Potter, she had COVID and she was taught this breathing technique. So I tell people about that technique. I said, write down the things I'm telling you because you may not be able to find me two o'clock in the morning when you need this stuff. So write down the name of this, this doctor has this breathing technique. This only take one or two minutes to do it, but you need to know that. You need to, certain things you need to have in case you need it. So and I tell that, them all that. I just hopefully tell them something that they can use. And sometimes you feel that you are able to fight, that it helps you to be able to fight because you got something you're awesome. And it may not be perfect, but it's giving attention to yourself that you may not be able to get from a hospital. And hopefully it prevents you from having to go to the hospital. Right. And I think, you know, a lot of what you're what you're doing and, and I, I, I can't commend you enough is you're a doer with all these things we've been talking about that you've done from rising above all the hate in in your childhood to uh, become a doctor to all that you're doing now um, to rise above all this hate, to provide hope, whether it's with COVID, whether it's with the racism, whether it's with, um, you name it in our country right now. And I, be I believe we need more Shirley Whitakers. We need more Dr. Shirley Whitakers because the more we can convey messages in the ways that you're conveying them with not an ounce of, of hate, but all sorts of resilience and, and, and hope and positivity, in light of all that's going on right now is really what we need. And I hope that everyone who's who's watching right now and seeing your messages just takes a little bit of it, just that little ounce, just. and shows how extraordinary everything you're doing is to bring people together, whether it's with a pandemic, whether it's with fighting against racism, whether it's honoring the past, whether it's trying to progress the future, all that you're doing is uh, is to be commended, and a lot of people from the top down could learn from you. That's um, last Sunday. I told people I held up the oximeter, and I said, "You know what? Give you gonna give somebody something for Christmas? Give them this." And I said, <laughs> "I'm sure they want a Tesla. I know that, but they can't drive a Tesla intubated you know, on, on a respirator." I <laughs> yeah. said. So give them this. And I said, it may make them care more about what's happening. And I said, you know, and this girl texted me and said she sent five N95 masks to someone in Los Angeles. Isn't that nice? See, that's the, the difference maker is instead of where can we boil up all that hate and that anger to do something positive? And I think what you just did is you just helped everyone decide, oh, that's what I'm going to give a lot of people for uh, for Christmas or Hanukkah. And I told there you did. You're, you're, all, you're, Santa, you're Santa Claus, too. <laughs> I told him, I brought this ginger tea. And so I just saw him making I held up a ginger root. I didn't grow up with ginger. 
not fresh. We had ginger in a little container, you know, you put on, sprinkle on something. But I told real ginger and I said, you know, my mother-in-law may be getting this for Christmas. Then my sister-in-law text says, she's looking at you. <laughs> so she said, my mother-in-law <laughs> was looking. But, and I told them about little packets of tea bags. And I said, I take, and I put it in an envelope and I say, have a tea on me. But I said, somebody sitting home by themselves and they'll be so surprised that you just sent a, a tea bag and green tea is good for your immune system. So I said, send them a little bag of ginger, you know, this, and uh, tell them about the ginger, fresh ginger and all this. So over there, share it because I said it's important that you share because somebody may need to know. And that's, I think, uh, to kind of sum it up, the the whole concept of sharing what we know, sharing the hope we have in our hearts, sharing the knowledge we have in our brains so that we can help one another. That's, That's, uh, That's uh, how we can progress. And every time that we're thinking of one of those hateful thoughts, yeah. <laughs> or, or if, if it's not you and I, someone, when you're thinking of those hateful thoughts, and we all have them, every single yeah. person gets, gets them, uh, think, wait, how can I change that into something where I can do something positive yeah. and change someone's outlook or change, change something because. No, no. And you never know, you never, ever know who you touch. You never yeah. know, you know, like this film ashes, to ashes, my neighbor who very seldom visit my house and came and I was talking about ashes, to ashes. And he said, do you mind me helping you to make this a reality? You never, never know who life you're touching. And you don't never know how you make a difference. And so let's keep uh, taking your lead. And I hope what we've discussed and uh, and continue. And let's see. I would love to hear what what people think and how uh, hopefully this has brought people together to uh, to show that you never know who you can touch and you can help. That's the that's the key. You never, ever know. And that's a good thing. You never know who life you may have changed by an act that's so simple like a tea bag. That somebody may like, need that tea bag. Like a tea bag. <laughs> just like a tea bag. Yeah. Uh, well, I gotta, I mean, just like a tea bag and how delicious tea is and how yeah. it can be the. Uh, the and help it can, for uh, us. Calming. Uh, the idea is someone thought about you. And it's not expensive. You know, just a tea bag in a card, just saying, have a cup of tea on me. That's it. And and that's the thing, because life isn't about uh money. It's about what you do with your life. My mother in law um, say it's very seldom to see a hearse going behind a uh um very seldom to see a U U Haul going behind a hearse. You know, you can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. So the Pharaohs uh, showed why, us that, didn't they? Oh, same thing. So that's why <laughs> give that tea bag. Doesn't cost a lot and could make a big difference. So oh. I, I mean, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you for this talking. This has been beautiful and uh, everything you're doing and continue to do is beautiful and i hope it's an inspiration for for others to to see that all it takes is a tea bag and you're doing this so i can tell them about the tea bag and that's nice of you because you didn't have to do this i'm sure oh, well, other you. places you could have been and thank you for your time to take the time with me i appreciate it
Wow, that was a pleasure and a privilege. Talk about someone who doesn't just talk but acts. That's Dr. Shirley Whitaker. I learned a lot from her. I hope you did too. And I hope it shows that we can all put our actions where our mouth is in a positive way to unite, to honor, to respect, and to progress. So I hope you've enjoyed Dr. Shirley Whitaker. And until next time, I'm Aaron Wolf. Stay hopeful, stay together, and stay united. When the world seems cold and bleak and you just can't take it anymore, here it comes, that glimmer of hope, a light shines through the dark. It's a hopeless soul, with Aaron and Rogue it was.